Hey, how's it going, everybody? It's Nicholas Davenport, a.k.a. Mr. Mental Muscle, and this is episode 12 of the Mental Muscle Podcast. Now, this is the last week of Mental Health Awareness Month. I've been doing a lot of different things this month. I've spoken at events. I've traveled across the country to do some engagements. It's been a great month for me. I love this because it's, it brings a lot of light to what's going on in the mental health and mental performance sphere. A lot of times things get swept under the rug because we don't really look at mental health and performance the same way we might look at physical health or performance. And I know it's getting more and more attention. Celebrities are talking about it more. It's getting talked about in the media. So that's great. But a lot of times things get brought up and they're misunderstood. There's some myths and there's misconceptions about how mental health actually affects people or how frequent it is or how severe the list really goes on. And I want to talk about that today. And before we even get into that, let's say that this is not clinical or medical advice. If you have any severe mental health issue, please seek out a licensed professional. The goal of today is to educate and inform on different topics regarding mental health so you can understand it better and maybe it can help you. Maybe it could help a loved one, someone near and dear to you. So that's the point of today's podcast. Now, with that being said, I want to start off with first the myths. There's a lot of things that go on when people talk about mental health and they think of it as this like one size fits all, either you got it or you don't. And that's kind of where mental health kind of differs from physical health. It happens a lot of times on a spectrum. You know, when you get physical health, there's pretty clear cut symptoms, diagnosis. And obviously with mental health, there's symptoms and diagnoses also, but they're not as transparent. Like if you have a broken leg, you pretty much know where to go with that. Or if something like cancer, we understand where to go with that. But with mental health, the first and foremost is even understanding, is there anything happening? And then we do get treatment or seek out help. They got to understand how does this present. But before we even get to that point, it has to be something that we even talk about. And that's the whole point I want to get of is different myths that people believe. So I'll go over all of the ones we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about eight different myths and they want to individually break it down one at a time. Now, the first one, mental health issues are rare. You don't need therapy. Just talk to a friend. Mental health issues are a choice. Mental health issues are strictly genetic and biological. You're just going to be prescribed medication. Therapy only gets into childhood issues. Black people don't need therapy. Eating disorders only affect women. So those eight different myths, this list isn't exhaustive. Definitely there could be more you've probably heard, but these are the ones I chose and I feel they cover an array of topics. So we're going to start with the first one. Mental health issues are rare. Now let's define terms, operationally defined terms. Mental health issue. We're going to use that as something that's either clinical or subclinical because we got to define that if it's clinical, we're talking about disorders such as bipolar, schizophrenia, major depressive disorder, things of that nature. So that's not just, that's just one part of it, right? Now, those are less common. That's about 10 to 12% of the population. But when we say issues, in this case, we're talking about things that affect your day-to-day -to, -day to some extent. Because when I talk about subclinical, that means that it's not enough to be a diagnosis, but it definitely impacts your life. And like I said, it's dynamic. It's not just as one size fits all. You're going to have days when you don't feel your best. You're going to have days when you're kind of antsy on edge. You might have days where you think you're, you don't mean anything. So does this mean you need a clinical diagnosis? No. But we have to understand that mental health does affect everyone to some degree. I always say there's passive aspects of it and there's dynamic aspects of it. The passive things that, you know, we try to feel better, do things that put us in the moment and things like mindfulness, breathing, centering, reflecting, journaling. That's all great. And then dynamic things are more 
active, like maybe seeking out therapy or mental coaching or something that's going to make you have to move, like exercise. So we got to look at it like that, because if we think if it's only this 1% chance, then we think it doesn't happen. If we think it doesn't happen, how can we be aware of it? And I think that's where we're kind of on this, this transition where people are starting to wake up to know that there is more issues going on with mental health. But at the same time, we have this misconception that it's not happening that much. So that's the first one. Mental health issues are rare. Second myth, you don't need therapy. Just talk to a friend. This one, I actually done videos on this in the past. And the first reason I don't like this, this myth or this, this mindset of what's the point of going to a therapist? The biggest thing is paying someone. I guess people don't like paying people for services, right? For some reason. And also paying someone just talk about your problems. If that's what therapy is to you, just goes back to why we need to clarify these things. It's more to therapy than that. Look at therapy as almost like a personal trainer. You go to a personal trainer for fitness, it's pretty clear cut. Once again, we can tell physical things way easier than we can tell the mental. If I want to lose 20 pounds, I tell the trainer, hey, I've been working out for about a month and a half now. I've been doing okay on my own, but I can't get past this hump. My goal is 20 pounds. I burned five already. I feel better, but I don't know what to do in the gym. I need help to get over these obstacles. Sometimes I don't even want to go. Now bring that over to mental health. The same thing is approach. A therapist is going to say, hey, what's your issues? What's the goal? What's the plan? How many times do you work on things as far as your mental health is concerned? So we can get to the bottom of it and can create a solution. This is what we want to do. So when people say we don't need therapy, just talk to a friend. The friend's not going to have the educational background to understand what may be going on. They're not going to understand techniques and strategies to help you. And also, the biggest part of going to friends instead of a therapist is therapists are objective for the most part. Yes, they bring in their own biases from their life experience, but for the most part, they're going to be objective to you and not bring in what you might have done in the past because a friend's going to do that. They're going to think of, hey, you've been with this person. You need to get over them. Just leave. And they're going to hold things over you or tell you what you did wrong. And maybe that's not what you need to hear in that moment. They're going to bring up things that they believe is right for you, which may be good intent. They may not mean any problems towards you, but this could be misleading and misguide you. And maybe also they might have their own ulterior motives. So a friend definitely is good to vent to. I'm not saying don't share with your friends. You need to have a social circle to have a healthy life, healthy, healthy relationships, because you want to be able to have someone to talk to. That's great for mental health. But when it comes to actual solution focus, trying to find an outlet so you can get better, you should seek a medical professional. There's no way to get over that. Now, does it have to be as far as a clinical psychologist? Maybe, depending on what's going on. That's important. We need to understand, is it severe enough? Is it frequent enough? How many symptoms? Then we can talk about that. But if something more subclinical, you can maybe see a mental coach. Someone's going to teach you mental skills, resilience, goal setting, confidence, motivation skills, so you can just handle and cope with day-to-day -day stressors. So that's why a friend comes in handy, but it's not a replacement for therapy. Now, number three, mental health issues are a choice. Think about this. A lot of people say, oh, you're depressed? Just get over it, man. Uh, feel better. Be happy. The world could be so much worse. Once again, this is probably not ill intent, but is this what that person needs to hear? Is this going to even help them? It probably won't. And going to that thing of, is it a choice? Who would choose to be severely depressed, not want to go on, not want to get out of bed? Who would choose for their mind to do and say things that are impulsive or sometimes out of their control? That's not something anyone would wish for, right? So to think that it's a choice, like they need to just suck it up and feel better. Because it's funny because... Brain chemistry is a part of it, and we'll get into that 
to the next one. But it's not like you just can flip the switch on and off because if you could, I think most people who suffer from severe, even less severe mental health issues would want to turn that switch off. So the thing that they're just choosing and they can't get over it, yes, there's active parts of it. That's not what I'm saying because you do have to play a role in your recovery and getting better. But it's not as simple as just pushing a button. So to think of it as, oh, they're just choosing to be depressed or they're choosing to let their life problems add up and get the best of them, that's kind of insensitive. But you got to understand there's more to it. But that perfectly segues to the next point of number four, mental health issues are strictly genetic and biological. So on the previous one, I said it's not a choice as to have to deal with it, but is a choice how you deal with it. So the thing that's only biological, I've seen this side of the argument as well when people say, well, my brain's just wired this way. I've known numerous people have told me this personally, and I've seen it elsewhere. And yes, it does have a biological and genetic factor, but that sets the stage. How do you cope with it is completely on you. Yes, it's, it may be hard. Yes, there may be roadblocks. There may be things that make it not as accessible, but you still have the ability to do it yourself and work towards the goal. Because if we just cop out to the fact that if my brain's wired this way and I can't do anything about it, what is the point of trying? We might as well just succumb. And that goes for anything, right? So the narrative of it's just biological is also not good because then you just using that as an excuse of why you may be incompetent or not be where you want to be in life. And that's not a way to live. It's all about mental health is all about being aware, like aware of what's going on. What's the stressor? What's the hindrance? What's the burden? What is making your life not as adequate as you need it to be, as you want it to be, or you think it should be? Once we can figure this out, then we can go about working on it. But if we think it's relegated to just, oh, my brain is like this, and there is some biological aspects. Like I said, your, your brain might be more predisposed to certain things. You got neurochemicals, you got norepinephrine, you have dopamine, you have serotonin, you have things that affect your behaviors. But that's not a one-way ticket to do what you want or think that it just stops you. So it's not just genetic or biological. Now, number five, you're just going to be prescribed medication. So this kind of plays off the previous being biological and genetic. A lot of people are afraid of getting mental health help or assistance from therapy or a clinician because they think automatically the solution is going to be like, take a bunch of pills. That could be something that is recommended down the road. But even if it is, we understand those are to help you. Now, can you have the active choice of, I don't want to do that? Sure. There's alternatives, definitely. But just know, get your education on how that actually works before you just shoot it down. But it's not automatically going to be the go-to solution. You might say, hey, go exercise. Let's say you've been inactive for three, four years. That might be something to tell you to do. Just move more. Go outside for a walk every now and then. Not too dramatic like a full blow exercise, but just walk every now and then. Does that mean you have to go full force and get a bunch of meds? No. Do meds get overprescribed? That could be debated. But we got to understand that that's not something to be afraid of because if you have a good condition, someone there that's going to work with you, they'll understand the how to form a treatment plan that's best for you. So let's not think of it this one-size-fits-all approach that automatically is going to prescribe you pills and say, go about your way. That's so one-sided. And even if it is part of your treatment plan, trust in the clinician that you found and did your research on that they think is best for you. And if it doesn't work, you can always change. So don't be afraid of that. Obviously, it is intimidating when you have to say medication because it affects your body. Obviously, it affects your mind. That's the whole point. But don't let that push away. Get your research done, understand how it works, and then you can push forward and figure it out. Now, number six, 
Therapy only gets into childhood issues. Another big misconception. Now, this has probably been popularized because you think of therapy or psychology, one of the biggest known psychologists or psychiatrists, I should say, is Sigmund Freud. He's one of the founding fathers of earlier psychological practices. Now, a lot of his work has been abandoned, not because it's right or wrong, it's just, it's outdated. Now, is there some form of psychotherapy that goes into that? Sure, but that's the beauty of psychology. There's numerous school, there's dozens of schools of thoughts that don't approach that. When I was in school doing my doctorate, my approach was more of a CBT slash existentialist type of approach. Now, CBT is cognitive behavior therapy. That dealt with more so changing how you think, the narrative of your mind. What is your thought processes? If we can change how you change your thought process, you can make better decisions or you can overcome irrational thoughts so you can stress less. So that's that was more my approach. And I still use that to this day. And I also had an existentialist view where it's more like I write my own narrative. Me, my body, my experience has to be something I engage in to control what I do to get my solution. So you see, those are just two. There's things like gestalt therapy. There's rational motive behavior therapy. That's another form going away from the CBT. So it's not just as one size fits all. There's different approach, just like going back to physical fitness. There's not just endurance training. There's not just strength training. There's yoga. There's Pilates. There's CrossFit. There's uh, sprint training. There's all types of things you can train for depending on what you need. And the same thing with therapy. So going to childhood, some therapists that may not be in their wheelhouse and they don't want to go for that. And if you want that, you can find someone who does do that. But if that's not what you want, there's definitely someone to fit that. So understanding that there is alternatives because I think that's the problem. There's not enough education when it comes to mental health and these type of things. It, it makes us believe that this is the only way. And if we don't like that way, typically we don't want to do something we don't like it. And if we think that's the only way, guess what? People are not going to want to look into their mental health or even go as far as getting a therapist. So understand there's many more ways other than investigating how you feel or your projection on others or your childhood issues, how your mother treated you. These are not necessarily end all be all to getting treatment. Now, the next one, this uh, affects a particular community. And I put this in here because as obviously I'm an African-American, I'm a black man. And there's something I see from my own life, my own family, as well as peers and just the community in general. Now it's black people don't need therapy. Now, just like many people think therapy may be a waste of time or weird, it's not just a black person thing, but overwhelmingly the numbers show that Black people are the most likely not to seek therapy and most likely to more so be prone to seek other outlets, such as maybe just talking to family or a church leader, which once again, is not a bad thing, but it goes to the point of, do the church leaders have the credentials? There are some church leaders who do have clinical psychology or therapist uh, degrees and backgrounds so they can couple the religious aspects with psychology, which is great because if you want that in your treatment, it's perfect. But if they don't have that, there's only so far they can go. And spirituality is a great way to cope. But there's still techniques and different approaches and strategies that may not be available by that person who's more of a clergy member or someone just in the community. So we got to understand that. But also the stigma. A lot of time I've heard these actual terms when a black person will say, oh, that's white people stuff or that's for crazy people. Black people don't do therapy. They just need Jesus. So we're denouncing the fact that, one, we face the same issues as everyone else. So that's a misconception right there is that black people don't have mental health issues. And there's a whole other topic we can go into. And the fact that, at least in America, we can say, I can't speak on other countries, but I live in America, that this affects black people in other aspects. So there is unique stressors that may need to be addressed. And you can even seek a therapist that is black. 
So at the end of the day, it's not to say black people don't need therapy. They get to understand you're getting affected just like anyone else. And this misconception that if you get therapy, you're crazy, or that's something black people don't do, or that's more for white people is misleading and is doing a disservice to the community. So we can't think like that. We got to open up and understand that we're underserved and we, we effectively get affected by mental health issues such as suicidal thoughts, ideation, actual suicide, schizophrenia, bipolar. It's not a dramatic difference between the races here. So we got to look into like, why aren't we getting looked at for certain things as well? And now the last one, this goes more into men as a whole. So eight, eating disorders only affect women. Now, by far most they do, like for the majority. So I'm not taking that away. When we talk about anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, that's primarily just women. But when you talk about things such as by dysmorphic disorder, there's something that can happen with men who where they need to reach a certain weight or a physique where they'll partake in certain activities. Like say people need to make weight. This has been seen like wrestlers, things of that nature where they have to binge and purge so they could get to a certain weight or they'll starve themselves so they can make weight. So this is not an issue that only affects women, but it's majority women, but we got to still give an attention to the men that are affected by it. Now, those are just, like I said, not an exhaustive list of myths and misconceptions, but these are things to think about because if we know that this is how it really is, you might say, wow, I never knew that. And you can look forward to be like, okay, now that I know this, let me look deeper into what can help me because now that you understand it, that's the biggest hurdle I think is information. People don't have the information, so how can it get better? Once you know better, you can do better. Now, segueing to this next part, we're going to look at stigmas in mental health because when we talk about myths and misconceptions, these are probably preceded by the stigma of this is what we think it is. We demonize it. We judge people wrongly. So let's look at that. Now, the first one is people with mental health issues are crazy. Like I mentioned, people with mental health issues are not crazy. Most of them hold regular jobs, especially when it's severe issues. So like I said, differentiate between severe and subclinical, regardless of which it is, they hold regular jobs. They walk amongst everyone like you and me. People automatically put this picture of some guy rambling to himself on the side of the road, homeless. That happens. A lot of homeless population are mentally ill, but to call them crazy, you're doing a disservice to them and misunderstanding the fact that they have something going on with them. If you saw someone with a physical ailment of any kind, broken leg, cancer, any type of physical disorder, you would feel pretty bad calling them names and you would probably get judged by others. But for some reason, when it comes to mental health, since we can't see it, like you can see a broken leg, you can notice that, but you can't see someone has schizophrenia. You not necessarily notice if someone has major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. So you can't know, but if you do see some kind of outburst, you, you judge them. And I get it. it. It's not the fault of the person because they don't really know. Going back to that information, but this is something we got to understand because we can't help those if we're seeing them as outcasts, pariahs, or even bad people. We think they're crazy because some people might even say men people with mental health issues are also violent. Like this is another, because if we think they're harmful, if we think they're bad people, we think they're crazy. Who would want to help them? And this is doing a disservice, like I said. So you got to make sure that you don't just judge someone when you hear, oh, they have this mental health issue or maybe a mental health disorder. Understand it, especially it could be someone near and dear to you. You'd be surprised. And once you find out, you can say, wow, this makes sense. And you might feel bad because you didn't know. And now you can look back and say, now let me help them since I understand now. So 
look into another uh, stigma, mental people with mental health issues can't work. Now, statistically speaking, people with severe conditions were employed at about a rate of about 54.5%, while people without them were at 75.9%. So that's not a dramatic, about 20% more. Yes, but it's not a super dramatic when you think of the fact that if it was so bad, you would see it like at 10%, 15%, they're not getting hired. But like I said, it doesn't necessarily ruin their function because most of the time they can't function with or without meds, with or without treatment. It's just they have to, different coping mechanisms that they might learn over time themselves or they might impart from something they've, they've learned from others or therapists or whatever it may be. So they can work just like anyone else. So this notion that they're not able to work or they're even lazy, that's another stigma. People with mental health issues are lazy. Like that goes back to my point. Yes, there is a big representation of mental health issues in the homeless population, but the notion that someone who has some type of disorder is weak or lazy is a big misconception because I'm gonna use a few uh, notable people. And the reason I'm using them because obviously I talk about survivorship bias, but there's definitely people who have them that don't succeed as much, but these are people who have, and they they have different disorders. So the first one's John Nash. He died not too long ago, a few years ago, who was played by Russell Crowe. And he was a mathematician. The movie was called A Beautiful Mind. And he had schizophrenia. Now, to go on a side note of misconception and myths and even stigmas, that movie kind of did a disservice because in the movie, it made for better probably Hollywood, but John Nash had auditory hallucinations. So that means he heard voices in his head. But in the movie, they appeared as voices and visions. He had little people that were talking to him, telling him to do things, and that's not how he had it. And a matter of fact, majority of schizophrenic uh, hallucinations come as auditory. It does happen as visual, but it's more likely to be auditory hallucinations. So the movie itself kind of set the tone for a stigma saying that these people have schizophrenia just seeing all types of things that aren't there. He more so heard them. But anyway, he was a mathematician. He won the Fields Medal, which is one of the highest honors in uh, math and science. So you can see he was able to achieve great things, but he had to figure out ways to cope with it. So does it make him lazy? No, it's just he had to figure it out, work harder even to get where he wanted to be. So it can be done. Also, Temple Grandin, she's a, a scientist who grew up with autism. Autism typically has difficulties with social cues, learning, things just interacting with day-to-day -day life. So for her to become a scientist, she worked with animals, cows. That's a big deal because, once again, it, it paints this picture of you hear the word autism, you automatically think they can't do anything. But just like most aspects of mental health, that's also on a spectrum. There's different levels of autism. There's higher functioning autism. So you can't just write these people off. Now, going to an actual actor, Dan Aykroyd, he's been in numerous movies from comedy to serious roles and everything in between. He's produced, directed. He has Asperger's syndrome, which is considered to be on the spectrum of autism and even ADHD because you look at it, higher on that spectrum is more hyperactive and lower on that spectrum is more sensory things that affect you to that nature. So with Asperger, you typically may not be as big on social cues, picking them up. And you can think this could be an issue when you have to play different roles. So once again, it shows that it's not necessarily a hindrance in a way that you can't do it, but it's more so you have to be able to overcome. Now, the late rapper DMX, he is known to have bipolar disorder. I think Kanye West actually talks about him having bipolar disorder as well, but it goes to the point once again, it might influence them in certain ways, depending on their mood. Where are they at? Are they in a manic episode? Are in a depressive episode? Are they at the midline? Because remember, bipolar, you think of poles up and down. There's a South Pole, there's a North Pole. So you're on one end or the other. So depending on their mood state, it could affect them, but it's not always. So people think of it as literally 
you're one way this day and this way another day, or even minute to minute, that's not the case. But they're still able to make things happen. And the last one I'll talk about is Solange Knowles. She has ADHD, which a lot of people misidentify, uh, and they get written off as being talkative and see uh, too much energy bouncing off the walls. But she had to channel that in some way, and she's a singer just like her sister Beyonce, and she's able to do what she needs to do. So this goes all in all, the stigma saying if you have these issues, you have these disorders, anything wrong with you mentally, then you can't make it in life. That's just wrong. It's not true at all. Does it make it harder? Sure. And that's not the issue here. If it's harder, we just need to understand what to do. Now, the next part I want to go to is stop colloquializing mental illness. What this means is using it as everyday terms, almost like slang. It become buzzwords. You hear about narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder. You hear about people, ADHD, OCD, bipolar. These all get used. Oh, you're so bipolar. So why do people do that? Because once again, they don't fully understand what these terms mean, but also they use them to describe a feeling rather than an actual issue. Like I said, subclinically, we're, we're going to have all these traits. We're going to have all these feelings to some degree. It's just a matter of how high, high frequent, how severe these are going to play a role into things. But if it's just something you're feeling in the moment, that doesn't make you OCD. It doesn't make you bipolar. So let's look at it. Have you ever said any of the following? I can't stand messiness. I'm so OCD. Oh, I lost my phone. I'm so ADHD. I'm sad. I must be depressed. I changed moods like night and day. I'm so bipolar. I have a split personality. I'm so schizophrenic. So if you ever use these, you're guilty of using them as colloquialisms. Now, does it make you a bad person? No, you might not understand. That's fine. But that's why I want to talk about these things. Now, the first one, I can't stand this messiness. I'm so OCD. So OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Now, before we get to all of these, let's break down how disorder is classified usually with the DSM-5. That's how we classify psychological disorders. Now, you have to have a frequency level, a severity level, duration. These three things matter. How frequent is it happening? Meaning, is it affecting your day-to-day -day life socially, emotionally, with your relationships? So if it's happening constantly, that's going to play a factor. How severe is it? It's to the point where you can't operate. You don't want to get out of bed or it's making it hard to go to work, hard to just do your day-to-day -day tasks. That makes a difference. And also duration. How long does it last? We're talking about something that's just happening for a day or two. Maybe just going through a, a moment. And it might be hard, but it will pass. But we got to look at that. The longer it lasts, that might be something to look into. Two months, three months, that makes a difference. So when you meet certain criteria in the DSM-5 for a certain disorder, once you meet them, they got to look also the frequency, severity, and the duration to know if it's to a level to actually be a clinical disorder where you might need further treatment or even something like medication. Now, getting back to OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, the obsession part, you have to have these irrational beliefs about a thought that's always in your mind. That's the first part. So if you're going to use this term, understand what it even means. Now, compulsion, that means you want to do it. You want to do it. You want to do it, right? So obsessive compulsion. So for example, the obsessive thought could be the world's going to end. Now, people might think that, but let's go further. The world's going to end. Now, the compulsion is if I don't knock on this table four times every hour, now, I'm just using this as an example, but you get where I'm going with it is the obsession is the irrational thought, what I think is going to be, and then the compulsion is I got to do something. So, for example, maybe you leave your house, you have to check the lock 10 times every time. 
This is not just once or twice you, you shake the, the handle, just make sure it's locked. Everyone does that. That's not a problem. Or walking away from your car, you hit the, the keys and you hear the beep, beep, and you might do it one more time just to make sure. That's fine. You see how that that's typical behavior. Got to look at it. It has to be beyond what's the typical behavior, social norms. We have a social norm. People like to be like, oh, no, society is this and makes these rules. And there is a set norm, though. I don't care how much society has changed. There is a baseline. There's a norm. And when you get out of that, that becomes abnormal. So now you got to look at, is this typical behavior? Now, the two beeps, that's fine. But if you have to do 10, 15 and walk back, wait, walk back, wait, it becomes obsessive. And the compulsion is I have to do it that many times. I even had a professor, she told me, one of her clients, that he would have to clean up the streets. And their rational thought was if he didn't, little kids would die because he figured they'll play in the streets to get hurt or eat the glass or whatever, the trash on the ground. So what he would do is have a broom and uh, the dustpan to sweep up this trash because it had to stop so the children would be safe. Did you see how that could affect your day-to-day -day life when you're trying to get to work and you stop for 20 minutes to do that? That's when it's a disorder. Now, if you pick up a piece of trash because you're like, oh, this is littering, no problem. That, that's just life. But when it's hindering your behaviors to do what you need to do, that's when it's a disorder. So you being a neat freak, wanting to clean and wipe the table because you need to have it clean, that's more sometimes people call it being anal. You're just, you're just so obsessed with having to have it clean. Can OCD involve that? Sure. But people who are like that, they're just neat freaks. They're not OCD. So don't think you're OCD because you want things neat. That's that's diminishing what they're going through. It's actually assigning something to you that you would never want to have. You would never want to have your day stop because your brain told you if you don't do something, something bad will happen or something needs to be done. And you just listen to it because that's what your brain says. You don't want to be that. So think twice before you use OCD in that colloquial manner. Now, the next one. I lost my phone. I'm so ADHD. Everyone loses things. Everyone forgets things. I forget things a lot. Now, it's not because I have a bad memory. I actually have a very good memory. It's because for me, at least, I forget because I never encoded in the first place. I, when I teach uh, workshops on like memory and things of this nature, I'll tell people, is it that you forgot? Possibly. But did you encode it in the first place? And when I say encode, that means do you ever retrieve the information, store it, and then go versus just saw it and then went? Because a lot of times we'll see the information and not pay attention to it enough to lock it in. So if you put your phone down while uh, doing another task, getting your keys, taking off your jacket, you might have lost in transition where you put the phone because you're worried about just sitting on the sofa and relaxing after a long days of work. That's very normal. Once again, that's not out of the norm. Most people do that. Then 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, I need to call someone. Wait, where's my phone? And you run through the house like, where the heck is my phone? Is right where you left it when you took off your jacket, but you don't remember because you never encoded it. So that doesn't mean you have ADHD. Or if you can't focus, you have to switch task to task. Now, I may argue that that might happen more now because in today's technological age, there's a lot that we can pay attention to. We have our cell phones, we have TV, computers. So it's easier to get distracted. So I'm not going to write that off. But at the same time, you got to understand that most people lose focus like that too. But if it's to the point where you can't get anything done, you can't clean your room, things start piling up, you're not doing deadlines, your schoolwork's not getting done, your job work is not getting done, your spouse is mad at you, that's another factor of ADHD. So is that what's going on? Or are you just not able to stay still because you have too much you're watching on your phone, your, your uh, TV, and so forth? Also with ADHD, people don't talk about is the emotional side of it. As we talk about ADHD, you have an overactive frontal lobe, your prefrontal cortex, where you're making all these decisions, these rational judgments. 
But on the other side of that, when we talk about emotion regulation, most people get rejected or dumped or told no. They take it as, all right, whatever, and go about the day. And people say, oh, yeah, nothing bothers me. But someone ADHD, they might take that way more to heart because they have that, that rejection sensitivity because their brain automatically jumps impulsively to the conclusion that I'm not enough. What's wrong with me? So that's a part about ADHD people don't talk about a lot is that rejection sensitivity, being overly emotional and not be able to control the emotions and in turn making rational, irrational judgments and behaviors that may harm other people and not sense of physically, but in a way that making bad decisions. So is that happening too? Ask yourself these. These are parts of ADHD that no one wants to take. It's like they almost want to glorify it because it sounds cool. Like, oh yeah, I'm so ADHD. Even if they mean it jokingly, it's like they're passing as something cool. But when you think about the negative sides of it, where it hinders your day-to-day -day life, where you can't get anything done, where your emotions get erratically pushed because you think that the littlest no, and that's the thing about it. It's not just a no to like, say, a girl or a guy you've been dating for 10 years or something like that. It's more so saying no to a small task. Hey, uh, can uh, I see what time it is? Nah, leave me alone. You're just passing by the street. You might take that a little bit harder and most be like, what? Who cares? But guess what? They care. And this is why you shouldn't override that. And when we say, oh, I'm ADHD, you're probably not thinking about all that. So take that in consideration. Next one. I'm sad. I must be depressed. Now, this one is probably one of the biggest because being depressed can be anyone can have depression. Like they go through a sad time, a time where they're going through a hardship. They lost someone close to them. They have people around them that aren't around anymore because of other reasons. It happens to all of us. We have these ups and we have these downs. But the point of this is, are you clinically depressed? Maybe, but you have to understand what that entails. There's different symptoms. You have to look at, do I qualify for these? And don't self-diagnose. Get the help you need to figure it out. But when we look at depression, sometimes it doesn't even happen the way you think. Some people get depression and you'll never know because they're still doing the things that they normally would do on the forefront, but people don't look at the small little things that they're doing anymore. Because, for example, let's say there's a guy named John. John works a regular nine to five, seems like a normal guy, has a family, a son, a wife, seems okay. Now, you know John. And out of the blue, you say, hey, John, you've been fishing recently? Because you know that he likes to go fishing. And he says, nah, not really. I haven't been fishing about eight, nine months. You think like, really? Oh, wow. What's going on? And he might open up to you or maybe just say nothing really, but not saying that him not going fishing for eight, nine months when he goes fishing every weekend with his son and have a great time means he's depressed. But you got to look at these are behaviors that we won't typically put up a flag for. It's typically the being lethargic in your room. He's probably still going to work, getting his job done because he has to support his family. But you're stopped doing the, the social norms or socially enjoyable behaviors that you used to do. Also, weight gain, weight loss eating increasing, eating decreasing. These are also things. So there's so many ways. Depression is having one face. So understand, is it just seasonal sadness? Is it sadness because of an actual event? These are things to consider. Or is it something more? Because that's going to play the difference. Now, this one is probably the biggest one. Between this and OCD, I think. That's misuse. I change moods like night and day. I'm so bipolar. No. First of all, bipolar disorder means you just need to have one manic episode. Once you have that manic episode, meaning a latent mood, you're more antsy, you might be more impulsive, more risk-taking behavior, more sexually deviant. Once you have that one manic mood, you can qualify for bipolar one because the key term is pole. Think about the North Pole, the South Pole. 
So the North Pole would be the manic episode and the South Pole would be the depressive episode. But technically, if you've had the manic episode, now you're bipolar because you've had at least one of the poles. So that's one of two, keyword by. So that's the first and foremost. But going back to the whole point, what is duration? We all get elated sometimes. We all get a little impulsive. We all get a little antsy. Sometimes we just want to go, go, go. We're feeling energetic, whatever. But it's not the same extent. It's not the same duration. And once again, you're going to have the other side, the lows, because typically with bipolar, the low part is the primary aspect of it. So you see what I'm saying? So when we paint this picture of it's always the high, but let's go, let's go. Now you're painting this narrative that they don't get sad. They're always answering, let's go. And it's night and day. Now, also what people misconstrue with this is they'll look at it as, oh, it changes minute to minute. Like, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. No, it's not that quick. This could last days or even weeks. Now, it can be quicker than that, but it's not going to be a light switch. So when you think about bipolar, don't think of somebody who's just jumping around one way and they get mood swings because a mood swing is normal everyone has mood swings sometimes you're going to be in a great mood and be ready to go 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 some days you're going to be like lethargic sometimes in the moment just in that moment you're like nah i don't know and that's normal once again you gotta look at how this fits into the the societal norm and how it deviates that's going to give us the biggest indicator right now this last one i have a split personality i'm so schizophrenic so first and foremost schizophrenia has nothing to do with split personalities now the translation i believe is split mind that's what schizophrenia means but it wasn't meant to be split mind in the sense of i'm this person or that person that's something called dissociative identity disorder or did now that does happen we have these fugue states where you become another personality and typically that's another misconception those typically are unbeknownst to each other so there was famous cases where Lady had like 12 or 13 personalities, and she was aware of all of them and found out to be a hoax. Her name was Jeannie. Now, typically, when you have multiple personalities, you're not aware because a fugue state means you're basically not necessarily blacked out, but you're going away from the other personality because it's some kind of mechanism to cope or get away from the trauma or whatever it may be. So you're not even that person anymore. But it's a misconception that you know about these multiple people is already wrong to, an, to a degree. Now, going back to schizophrenia, this is more so about how you have hallucinations. Like I mentioned with John Nash, he had a lot of auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. There's um, the movie uh, The Soloist, where the main character played by Jamie Foxx, he was a, a concert a, a celloist, and he had schizophrenia. He was a classically trained musician with the Juilliard, but it affected him. He ended up being homeless. So this is something that dramatically affects people because it's hard to function when you're hearing voices in your head or seeing things that aren't really there because one, that can be scary first and foremost. And how do you act in day-to-day -day civilization where once again, societal norms, hey, how you doing? And you freak out when you hear something or see something that isn't really there, people are gonna judge you and they may not know better. But the thing is, it's not gonna be accepted, meaning why it may be harder to hold a job or harder to function day-to-day. So that's why I implore people not to use these terms so colloquially, because when you do that, it makes it seem as if they're not as much, they don't matter. And some other terms that get used as buzzword, like PTSD, I didn't really talk about that one, but that's another one, post-traumatic stress disorder. Not everything that makes you feel bad is PTSD. It might hurt, it might be stressful, it might leave an imprint on you that makes you feel iffy about it later on. But is that really trauma? Because we all go through things. Trauma should be to the extent where it's so bad that it's encoded. Because remember, PTSD, it gets encoded in your long-term memory where it triggers you because it's your brain saying to survive. Hey, last time this happened, be aware. Because 
this memory wasn't good. And that's really where the trauma gets re-triggered from, right? Now, someone who had a bad experience, a bad breakup, can it be to that extent? Depends on how what really went down, sure. But it's typically for something way further on that spectrum. Remember, spectrum. Something that's way more severe. It doesn't necessarily have to be watch someone get killed or uh, a disaster. Those definitely rank pretty high. That's when we talk about PTSD. It's usually what we talk about. I mean, we got to consider that people aren't automatically going to get that just because they had a hard time. And when, like I say, we dilute it. We use things common, but not commonly. That's what I say. Use mental health terms commonplace, but not commonly. Meaning commonly, they should be known, it should be said, but not commonly as there's no merit to them. Now, with narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, typically I think people use the term narcissist more as a trait descriptor, like kind of like the dark triad term, not necessarily the clinical, but it gets interchanged. And once again, it's just like PTSD. All because someone was like confident doesn't make them a narcissist. All because someone you felt didn't treat you right, they use terms like love bombing and and things of that nature, breadcombing, is being very popular because it sells books. People love to read about it and think, oh, I dealt with a narcissist. But on the other side of the spectrum, don't label someone this just because you had a bad falling out either. So it goes both ways. Don't mislabel someone who's dealing with it for real and don't label someone who's not, right? So make sure this is why learning about this stuff is so very important. Now, to close everything out, if you ever have any issues, like I said at the beginning, be able to talk to someone. Like I said, if it's not a clinical expert who can help you, at least open up to someone who maybe can get you and guide you to that point. Because if you're dealing with something hard and a lot of pain, you don't have to suffer. I know it may not be easy, especially when you're just hearing it. Okay, get over it. People, people don't respond to it. And that's why I don't like that mindset. But that's why I want to educate so you can understand. So make sure if you need that help, Seek it out, find a licensed professional if necessary, but at most get some type of help. And if you're dealing with this, it's never too late to get your mind right. Thanks guys for tuning in.